Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a long-life friend of Herod, Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas, and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they had came a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, the man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elmas, a magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You, the son of devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the land of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Great job, Riley. That was awesome. Thank you so much. I mean, there's probably nothing sweeter than seeing a little kid and their best friend up there, Harley, giving support. Um, that's a hard passage to read. There's a lot of hard names. I'm going to mess up some of those names. So um, thank you so much, uh, Matt, for helping Raleigh with that. And that was, that was wonderful. Um, okay, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. As we continue our series, what is the mission of the church? What in the world are we doing here? So far, we've seen that the church's mission is to fulfill the Great Commission to go and to share the Word of God, to make disciples, to bring people into the church. Jesus has given this command. And the amazing thing that we're seeing here in Acts is that this mission is being fulfilled despite opposition at nearly every turn, despite uh, disciples being murdered and executed and people being put in prison and false accusations being made. God is fully committed to the church, His bride, to use it to change the world. So last week we saw that brutal and odd and really sickening death of King Herod being eaten by worms because he opposed God. He opposed God's attempt to spread the gospel throughout um, the area. He was attempting to stop Christianity from spreading, and he received the wrath of God. And we see again here in our passage today um, that God will directly oppose the opposition, that he will see to it that his church break through that opposition to be the church that he desires it to be. And this week we see the church continue to flourish as the first missionaries here are sent out. And it's pretty amazing the sacrifices the church is willing to make in order to go into these places that are unreached, 
where things are uncertain, where um, they don't know what's going to happen in order for the sake of the gospel. And I think there's a lot for us to learn about what God intends to use for us even today, just as he used for the church then, to fuel our mission. Our mission is to be and make disciples for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. And we're trying to figure out, we're trying to flesh out. We've never done this before. I've I've never led a church. This is the first church I've led in this mission. So I don't know exactly what I'm doing. Uh, Fortunately, we have officers and we have other people who are committed to this, and we're willing to figure it out together. And I think the, the reason it's so helpful to study the book of Acts is it starts to show us the practical things we need to commit ourselves to as a church. And so this is a good time to ask yourself, one, have you ever been a part of a church that's committed to the things we're going to talk about? And two, what would it look like if you were? And three, are you personally committed to these things that the church and even these individuals who make up the church, that they're committed to? And what would a life look like that was? So think about those things as we talk. Let me pray. Lord, um, I do thank you for uh, your instruction. Thank you for your word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. So we come to be fed. We come to be sustained this morning. Lord, for those in this room who are really trying to sort out what the role of church is in their life, if it's really that important, Lord, they've come here today because they obviously believe that there's some inerrant benefit in being here. But I pray that you really show them, really raise their view of your bride. Lord, the church is who you came and died for. You didn't just die for us individually, although you very much did that. You also died for us corporately. You died for a people, um, to gather a people together. So what we're doing here, again, it's not, it's not ritualistic. It's not just superstitious. It's meaningful. It, it, it's actually doing something. Um, because you are here in a way spiritually that we cannot um, encounter at any other time, Lord. You are doing something miraculous and wonderful through the worship of your people. We pray that your Holy Spirit fall afresh on us this morning. Open our eyes to see. Give us ears to hear the truth of the gospel, some for the first time. All for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, quite a few of you showed up a couple weeks ago for our particularization service, the worst term ever for what a church is supposed to become. Um, Spent many months trying to explain that to many people. Uh, but we became our own self-sustaining church. So that was kind of, the first goal was to gather people together. The second goal was to launch. And the third kind of final goal to becoming this official entity was to particularize, to raise up a group of people that could give enough to sustain what we're doing, to be a growing church, a fruit-bearing church, to have officers and leaders raised up and recognized in the church. And we've done all that by the grace of God. He has built up his church a much more beautiful and wonderful church than I could have ever imagined or hoped for. So we celebrated that, and it was wonderful. The question is, the question that you should be asking, the question I'm certainly asking is one who's supposed to kind of cast the vision of what we're supposed to be and do, is what now? So we did it, but what are we supposed to do now? That was motivating so much of what I was trying to obtain, so now I'm asking myself, How am I supposed to lead the church? What are we supposed to, as officers, elders, and deacons, supposed to lead the flock into? And I think Acts chapter 13 gives us a real clue into what we're supposed to do now. And what is the fuel that is supposed to drive this mission? God has gathered us together. He's raised up a generous congregation. Relationships are being formed. Small groups established. Rhythms created. But how should we be spending our time together in preparation to be and make disciples for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. 
So it sounds really good, right? It's a really sexy mission, right? But then how do we actually put feet and hands to this thing? So we're not just talking about it all the time. Well, that's what the church commits to here in Acts chapter 13, because they're trying to figure out the same thing. We're gathered here. Jesus has, Jesus has come. He's established the church. He's been resurrected. Now he's ascended. Now he's overseeing the church. He's given us the Holy Spirit. The church is growing and replicating in, in Jerusalem and now in Antioch. It's being spread all over the world. It's going to the ends of the earth. What now? So I think what the church here in Acts chapter 13 commits themselves to and how they organize and function is crucial for us to understand and emulate as a missional-minded, Christ-exalting, disciple-making, God-fearing, people-loving church. Now here's the thing. I'm going to be talking a lot this morning about the church, the corporate church, the church universal as uh, Josh prayed. And here's the thing. A lot of us come here and we just want to receive the individual, the life application which is very important. But sometimes we need to have things applied to us corporately. So if you kind of leave this morning, you're like, well, he didn't really talk to me about my life. Um, I'm sorry. Just There will be plenty of passages where we'll get to you individually, and that is important. I'm not downplaying that. But I do want you to understand that sometimes we have to talk to each other as the church because... Your individual faith is very much tied to what's going on corporately with us as a body of believers, okay? So, two points this morning, two simple points. What I see going on here is a church committed to spiritual disciplines. Now, that may sound kind of negative to you guys, like I'm not a very disciplined person, and I don't... I don't know what it looks like to really be disciplined. Well, I think this is going to help us understand what it looks like individually, but more importantly, corporately, what, to, what it looks like for all of us to commit. So I want to look at the purpose of the spiritual disciplines here and the result of the spiritual discipline. Or you could say the purpose of the spiritually disciplined church and the result of the spiritually disciplined church. So look at me with me at verses 1 through 3. And just to give a little context of where the church is at and what it's looking like, because it's really exciting what's going on here, um, and I think it really applies to the church we're trying to become here at Flat Rock in this particular neighborhood. So Luke tells us that the church in Antioch has been established in this third largest city in the, in the, the known world at this time. It's a, it's a um, cosmopolitan kind of place. There's a lot of business and commerce going on here in trade. It's a very important city, um, and it makes sense that the church is growing from Jerusalem on into Antioch and beyond, and it's also a very diverse city. There's people coming from all different kinds of places. The church in Antioch is very different from the church in Jerusalem in its makeup. It's multicultural, made up of all different kinds of people, and then here at the beginning, you get the list of these guys who are helping lead the church at this point. We're going to nickname the Antioch Five. That sounds really cool. The Antioch Five, okay? No, it doesn't sound cool. Brandon's shaking his head. Um, the Antioch Five. Who, who, who's, who are the leaders? What is the makeup of these leaders? First, you have Barnabas. Again, he's showing up. Everyone loves Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He seems to show up at every crucial moment in the church, and he's leading the way so far. He's faithful. He's sold out to the mission of the church, and he's doing a lot of good. He even went all the way up, and I think, to, to Tarsus, I believe, and recruited Saul. He knew that, that Saul had been converted, and he knew the gifts and the background that he had, being a former Pharisee, that he could come and, and, and give the gospel to the Gentiles in a way that no one else could. So 
He goes and he's recruiting people, right? This guy's a great church planter. He started this church in Antioch. He's got Saul, and then he's got Simeon. Simeon is believed to be a black African here. That, that term Niger is this Latinism for black. And so you're seeing some diversity here with Jew and Gentile alike coming together, different races and backgrounds. Then you have Lucius the Cyrene. He's also North African. He's believed to be a Libyan. And then Menaean, 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 who interestingly, I thought this was interesting, um, he's the brother of King Herod Antipas. Now, we had King Herod from last week who was eaten by worms. This is his relative before him who's already dead. But God has converted someone of royalty right from out underneath the nose of Herod, which is really important because it's showing that he is saving both rich and poor. He is saying, saving Jew and Greek. He's building something totally different than what the world is used to. Because you have to remember, like I've said before, there's no one picketing that the church is not diverse enough. There's no one with their signs showing this great dissatisfaction that the church is not looking like what they thought it should look like. Because people were tribal. They were fine gathering in their own tribes and being completely segregated and separated. But God is building something new, something different. Something based on the ethic and the vision of Jesus that Jesus introduced to the world. So the church is something totally unique, and we have to understand that today. We are supposed to be something countercultural. We're supposed to be something that people see and they say, that's not what I'm used to, that draws them into a different type of community. So this Antioch 5 represents a multi-ethnic leadership representing God's heart for the missions of the church, for the nations of the church including the poor and the rich and the Jews and the Gentiles and the Romans and the Greeks. They represented what we would, we would call an integrated church. That's what I long to see. As we have people sitting here from Egypt and people sitting here from India, we have people sitting here from South America, we have, we have, we're starting to reflect this integrated church, right? Japan and Rwanda, this is beautiful. This is something we should become addicted to. This is a good mission for us to have. And it's glorious that God is honoring that. So in this church, or in this culture, it was typical that Greeks didn't like Romans, Romans didn't like Greeks, the Jews didn't like anyone, the rich separated themselves from the poor, the poor hated the rich, the educated judges the un- uneducated, but not in the church. And the church is different. Christ's church was meant to be reflective of another otherworldly culture, a community of sinners made saints by the grace of Jesus, souls transformed, the closest taste of the kingdom of heaven that you can experience here on earth. Is that what flat rock is? Are you getting foretastes? Is it teasing you a little bit about what might come and what might happen one day when all of the nations and tongues and tribes will bow their knee before God? Jesus introduced that to the world. So we also see that these are prophets and teachers. So this is really helpful in thinking about how the church was led from the beginning. You have these people with these qualifications that they are people equipped to tell people about the Word of God. Again, it's not just through service, although service is important. Service is an avenue to speaking the words of the gospel. And if we're not doing that, we're not fulfilling the mission of the church. You make disciples by telling them about the good news of the gospel. And you you can live out the ethic of Jesus in a way that draws people in 
in a way that people see, especially in our culture, that we are a church that loves the community, that is extremely important. But the ultimate goal for us is to tell people about Jesus, okay? That's why, we do, that's why we're here at Witsit. That's why we do tutoring. That's why we have picnics in the park like we're going to have this afternoon, because that's what we ultimately want. Now, some of that's the long play. We want to build relationships over time. It's not like everyone we meet, we're like, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Um, we want to build relationships over time, but that is what our prayer and our hope needs to be. And so these men who are leading the church are men who have been specifically gifted with the ability to do that and then train others to do it. We want our leaders to be the same. This past weekend, we had an officer's retreat because it's good for our officers to get away and just feast together and then pray together. And we, we actually did something kind of different. I had my officers prepare sermons and then preach. We preached through the book of Jonah in a, in a, on a Saturday morning. We did it before noon, right? Um, so we preached through, um, we, had, we had these guys prepare, and then they preached, and then we critiqued it. Because I really want to raise up, I want to be a leader that gives away leadership. So I want to raise up other men who can teach here, who can be equipped and gifted to do that. And then I want to continue to identify other people who have that gift and work with you all to be able to, to, to use that gift for the good of the church. And so we see a church here that's equipped with these men, but it's also missional from the start. So you notice that through these spiritual disciplines of worship, prayer, and fasting, they receive wisdom from the Holy Spirit who commissions them to go out to plant churches. Okay, this has been the heartbeat of God for the church since the beginning. Us desiring to plant churches is not just like the new cool thing to do for the mission of the church. We didn't just come up with this. This is historic. This is biblical, you could say. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We believe what we're doing matters because it's always what the church was supposed to be about. And they actually do something crazy. They, they take probably the two most talented men in Barnabas and Saul, Saul who's Paul, the future apostle, the one who's going to write scripture himself, Barnabas, the great son of encouragement who just is everyone's best friend, and they think, of all the people we have, let's take the people who started this and let's send them out to plant the other churches. That's sacrificial. That doesn't really make sense. Because you would think, let's insulate, let's at least keep this church in Antioch going strong before we go and risk going into these other places to plant other churches. But not here. We should, we should take a mental note of that, of how the church operates here. So, application. This is a helpful, it's helpful to read and learn because it should inform us about what we're trying to do here at Flat Rock and how we're set up and what we believe we should be doing in planting churches one day. Um, so let's focus for a second on these spiritual disciplines because that's what they are and that they have a powerful purpose if used correctly, both individually and corporately. And I think it's helpful for us to unpack their purpose. I always have, like I've told you before, I always usually have a companion book that I'm reading whenever I'm preparing a sermon. And this, this week's book was Richard Foster's book called Celebration of Discipline. And if you've never heard of it, um, it's really all about how spiritual disciplines work and how they help us and how they put us in a position to receive the blessing of God and the joy of the Spirit. Um, and so I started studying these particular disciplines through his book. And this is what he says. He says, Joy is the keynote of all the disciplines. Their purpose is liberation from the stifling slavery to self-interest and fear. What an important thing for us to do in our individualistic culture. When the inner spirit is liberated from all that weighs it down, it can hardly be described as dull drudgery. 
So when most of us think of discipline, we think of working out every day, eating healthy, and we think about how daunting that is and how we're just going to fail it and feel shame from it, and we just go through this cycle of it. It's, that's not the point of the spiritual disciplines. It's not dull and drudgery. It's actually singing and dancing and even shouting are meant to characterize the disciplines of the spiritual life. It is for beginners and even non-believers are welcome to it. It's not just for the super spiritual. All that is required to practice these spiritual disciplines is a longing for God. For the New Testament church, these were so regularly practiced that the how-to wasn't necessary. But today it is. The disciplines are sowing to the Spirit. They're God's way of getting us into the ground. They're God's means of grace. By themselves, they do nothing. But God has ordained the disciplines of the spiritual life as the means by which we place ourselves where He can bless us. And we have to remember, His grace is free, as Bonhoeffer says, but it is not cheap. His grace will cost you something. You'll have to say no to something else in order to say yes to Him. And the spiritual disciplines put you in a place when you're fasting, when you're denying yourself something in order to find your sustenance from God, when you're choosing to pray instead of check your email in the morning, when you're choosing to spend your time in worship instead of out in a field somewhere at the pool on Sunday morning or at a sporting event, you are saying no to something else. It's costing you something. And that's part of the point of them. So let's talk about these three disciplines here. First, worship. What is, it, what is it to worship? Great definition I read this week. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God. So you think about Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation, kind of the whole point is to sit down, be still and quiet, and empty the mind, right? Kind of reach this place of nothingness. Place of kind of peace, I guess. Christian prayer and worship is the opposite. It's, to, it's meant to quiet and still yourself, but then to fill your mind, with the truths of God. That's why Scripture matters. That's why the promises of God matter. That's why prayer is a part of worship. To worship is, it's, the original word is worthopy. It's to give worth to something. It's to give worth to God. And we believe here at Flat Rock that we're all worshiping something. If you're not worshiping God, then you're worshiping something else. You're giving, you're giving your allegiance and your time, and you're giving worth to something else in your life. Well, it might be your job. It might be a commitment to money. It might be your body. It, whatever it might be. Feelings and experience are important in worship, but what matters is the glory of God first. And this is really messed up in our culture because, as I've said here before, typically you leave and go to lunch and you just start gabbing about everything you liked or did not like in the service. So if you're here for the first time, you're like, yeah, that sermon was okay. I just fell asleep in part of it. Uh, the, I liked some of the songs, some of the songs I didn't like. Instead of tabling that conversation with, what do you think God thought of that? So what if we all went to lunch today and you, and you had a conversation? What did God think of worship at Flower today? It would probably open you up to a lot of different forms of worship. So we just do it one way here. God can be worshiped in a myriad of ways. It might soften your heart to be like, you know what? That wasn't perfect. There were things I didn't like about it. I think God really liked it, though. So, worship is what we were made for. If we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping something else. It's a discipline because it's an ordered way of acting and living that sets us before God so he can transform us. He is here spiritually with us. And Foster, Richard Foster says that worship begins in, in, begins in holy. We come in here expectant, like we all want to change. Remember how I said that? 
We want to experience change and that in the end of worship, it should end in holy obedience. So it shouldn't just be something we consume for an hour. It would be something that presses us out into obedience and into missions. And if we're obedient, we're obedient to the call of the Spirit because what are they being obedient to here? What has Holy Spirit said to them? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So by putting themselves in a place of worship, they're able to hear the Spirit. The distractions are cut out. They're tuned in. They're in rhythm, if you will. The guitar is tuned. They're playing the melody that they're meant to play. But many of us don't view worship that way. This is just some dull drudgery we're supposed to do so that we can feel better about ourselves and go into our week and say, yeah, I went to church. But it's meant for the the good of your soul, the good of a body of people, a community of people. You know, there's this great scene in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah is given this vision and he's in the throne room of God. I mean, it's unimaginable to be standing at the foot of the throne of God and all these creatures around, they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And Isaiah gets to bear witness to it. And then this, this creature comes over and puts a coal on Isaiah's tongue because he is not worthy. He's a sinner and he's been given access to the God, so God, so he must be purified. He must be made righteous to stand in this holy place. And so that coal is representing this, the same refinement, the same purification that's offered to us through Jesus Christ to make us able to stand in the presence of God. Because of Jesus, we're able to worship. We're able to be here spiritually in the presence of God. And Isaiah's reaction to all of this is, here I am, send me. He doesn't even want to just stay and consume it. He wants to go out and let everyone else know about it. Even in the Old Testament, it's always been the heart of God to be missional. And Isaiah is bearing witness to that. And then we see prayer. Prayers, prayer always needs to be the central part of our worship. Our disciplines and our purpose in the church, just as it is here in the New Testament church, it's what transforms us. It makes us dependent upon God. He speaks to us. He challenges us. It humbles us to deny ourselves the pleasures of this world, to spend time in the presence of God. Prayer makes us love what God loves. It makes us hate what He hates. It makes us value what He values. It makes us reorient ourselves to the purposes of God. And it's a discipline of self-denial. Again, not emptying the mind, but filling the mind. And everything we do at Flat Rock needs to be bathed in prayer. That's why we pray five or six times in our service. It's why we spend weekends with our officers praying for, for long periods of time, seasons of prayer. It's why we pray in our staff meetings. It's why we pray in our feast groups. It's why we pray with you individually. It's why I believe that when someone asks for prayer, you don't ever walk away from prayer. You pray on the spot. It's one of those helpful things you can do. little nugget wisdom for Pastor Jay. Um, that ministers to people. And we want to be about that at Flat Rock. And then you see this strange thing that we don't quite understand. Some of y'all may have tried this before, but fasting. Why are they fasting? Prayer and worship is really great. Isn't that enough? Not to stop eating. But they sense that this is, in, in their culture, it was totally normal, to deny themselves the sustenance of food so they would find their sustenance in God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. They believed that so strongly that they knew that there were times where they were seeking the wisdom of God about how they were to fulfill their mission, that they should deny themselves food so that when they're hungry, they go and find their hunger satisfied by the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ himself. Now, fasting in our culture is controversial. 
We don't understand it. I feel like God is calling me personally first to fast for our church and then as officers for us to fast and as a congregation to begin making this a regular rhythm and practice of how we seek the face of God. That if we are going to be and make disciples, I feel like the Holy Spirit was telling me this week, fasting is going to have to be a part of what you do, church. What is that going to look like? Now, not all of us can fast food. We all, there's all kinds of different issues with past trauma with food and that kind of stuff. So food may not be your option, but it might be the pleasure of entertainment. It might be every, t- every morning that you pick up your phone first instead of spending time with the Lord that you decide, you know, I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm going to spend time with the Lord. Or I'm not going to watch that show for a month because I, when, I, when I desire to watch that show, I'm actually going to spend time with the Lord. But the primary means of fasting is food. It is denying yourself something, maybe not food altogether, but something in your diet that, that you really love and that might be a good time for you to say, when I want that thing, I'm just going to spend time with the Lord. I'm going to pray. And that's what these people commit themselves to in order to understand what the mission of God is and then to fuel that mission out. So do you see the purpose of the spiritual disciplines here? How important they are for us as a church? This needs to be something that you need to ask yourself. Am I being encouraged to do these things? How is this encouraged? Is this the kind of church I want to be a part of that encourages this? Okay? And what would it look like for us to be trained up as a group of people that does this in Woodbine for the sake of making disciples here. It could be powerful. Because what happens here? All of history is changed by these men committing themselves to these disciplines. And here's, here's where the gospel comes into play. Because you might be sitting there and saying, whoa, this is too, too much, Jay. I'm just, I'm glad, you should just be glad I'm here. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. But I would be remiss if I'm not calling you to something deeper and more satisfying. And I believe that there is a life that is more satisfying, committed to Jesus, not just so you can be the good Christian, but because Jesus gave his life so you could commit to these things. Jesus denied himself. He denied himself the fellowship of the Father so that you could be ushered into that throne. If he denied himself for the sake of his bride, the church, how much more should we commit ourselves to the bride, to seeing that bride sanctified and reoriented and, and presented to God. So you see the result of the spiritual disciplines. These men, they go out, Paul and Barnabas, they immediately uh, come up to this man, Bar-Jesus. What a heck of a name there. Um, Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus or even the son of salvation. So there's kind of controversy on, was this, that, this guy's real name? Because we're told he has another name here. I believe that he's using this name to kind of be this, Jesus, this antichrist, this false prophet, this, this guy who's saying, I'm, I'm Jesus resurrected. Listen to what I say. And so these men come, and they've made it all through this area, and they reach this, the, the end of the island called Pat, Patmos, and they encounter um, this Sergius Paulus, this high-ranking government official, um, and he's heard about what these men are doing, and he has invited them, he's encouraged them to come, Again, like evangelism softball, tell me the word of God, okay? They've never met this guy. He's a total stranger. They've never heard about Christianity. They have this false prophet just totally confusing them and making everything really strange and weird and awkward. And then they come, and he says, I want to hear from you. But this Bar-Jesus, the son of salvation, which is what his name means as well, 
he is trying to block them. He's saying, Paulus, don't listen to him. Listen to me. And of course, Paul uh, has a bit of a rebuke for him. Um, he says, oh, son of Jesus, you are son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop mo- making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Stop running interference. He says, now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. I think Paul knows what that's like. He's blinded from the light in order to put him in a darkness that he might one day see the light and realize that it's from God. And this divine disruption that's happening to him, we've talked about this, how necessary divine disruption is for the salvation of souls. This divine disruption, what does it lead to? The salvation of Paulus. So Paulus has to bear witness to the wrath and the judgment of God in order to be saved. That's interesting. Because isn't it all about the love of Jesus? Isn't that all we should be talking about? No. I think the wrath and the judgment of God is equally as important. Because it's what we all deserve. We, we live in the darkness. He is a representation of where our souls are in this world apart from Jesus. They are blind. And we need the light. And we can only see the light by the grace and the hand of God through divine disruption. Is he divinely disrupting you? It is so that you might see the light. There is purpose in it. He's not doing it just to make you miserable. He didn't do it just to make this guy miserable. He did it so that he would be brought to salvation. So he would know who the real Jesus is. And I think we too should be divinely disrupted by the judgment of God. He's a holy God. He will not associate with sin. He will not allow us to run interference. If we reject Him and align ourselves with Satan and wanting others to not believe in Jesus, or in even giving ourselves over to our passions and appetites, then we will experience God's wrath and God's judgment. I'll close with this. So, you see the amazing results of the fruit of an integrated church committed to the spiritual disciplines of worship, prayer, and fasting. And this is the type of church I envision us being here at Flat Rock one that encourages all of us both individually and corporately to be denying ourselves, committing our lives to loving what God loves and hating what he hates. Is this the type of church you desire to be a part of? One that practices spiritual discipline, seeking renewal of human souls and revival. Will this fuel revival here? I think it could. I think a radical commitment to these things could. The practice of these disciplines leads to churches being planted, to people coming to know Jesus. And remember, as we go to this table this morning, again, just to bring it back to the gospel for us, Jesus denied himself and took up his cross to free us from the slavery of self-gratification and indulgence. He freed us to commit ourselves to his way and his bride of the church. Satan, too, seeks to oppose us by attempting to create division and hurt and opposition and dysfunction here, distrust, dissatisfaction. And we must remember the true prophet and son of salvation, Jesus Christ, who was set apart by the power of the Spirit to proclaim freedom to the captives, salvation to all, that they might believe and trust in him. He was resurrected so we might prevail as a church no matter the opposition. Jesus, the Son of God, was the lover of all things righteous, fully committed to denying himself in order to receive us. God made straight the paths of history to bring him to us in victory, despite Satan's attempts to make those plans crooked. He too endured darkness for three days that we might be delivered into the light. So let us go to the table with astonishment for all that Jesus has done, 
for us as individuals and for his bride, the church. He loved her enough to give her life for her. How much more should we be willing to give our lives to serve her and make her radiant before the watching world? Let's pray.